There has to be some wisdom like a poo in the hand is worth two in the diaper. Or I don't know how the math works out, but there's something there. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Justin. We're the J-Pops. And we are attempting parenting in Japan. Thank you for joining us for episode 23. Today we're going to discuss a few things about infant development, their vision, and bilingualism. But first, how about some updates? Yes, sir. We have, what's about a nine-week-old on our hands now. The interesting thing, when a baby hits about two months, at least for us, I'm sure this depends and it varies uh, based on weight and length and all that, but your baby goes on the transition between its newborn phase and its small baby phase. Mm. That applies to diapers and it applies to all of the clothes, the outfits and all that. We kind of find ourselves now in this transition period. The newborn clothes are getting a little bit tight. They're turning into high waters. It's hard to button Mm. things now. And uh, if you transition into the next category of clothes, they're usually called three to six months, but he's not three months. So these clothes are like, you know, footy pajamas that are, say, five inches too long for him everything's a bit loose and then the diapers are a bit bigger and like, you know, he's not filling out the diaper with his legs as much as he did before. So what this has led to has been several poop explosions (laughs) because before when clothes are tight, it keeps everything tight to the body, keeps the diaper in place. Everything's where it's supposed to be. But now that the diaper's a bit looser, the onesie's a bit looser, whatever we put on like a little gown or an outer layer of clothes, it's a bit looser. You know, if he just turns slightly, suddenly his diaper's not where it should be and he poops and it goes everywhere and it's a horrible nightmare. So (laughs) I would say that we're, um, it's almost every other day at this point that wow. we hear the noise, we hear the booty booty noise, and now we're just set with a deep panic, and we sort of lift him up and look at him, and then you'll see this like growing stain, like it's a Tarantino movie from the clothes, <laughs> but instead of blood red, it's yellow, and slow zoom in, yeah, exactly, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you hear some dramatic '70s music playing in the background. Slow zoom, and you see the stain start to grow. I think the peak, well, we had two peaks. One was I was at the kotatsu, which for people who don't know is like a coffee table with a blanket, and it's something a lot of Japanese homes have, so you can cozy up under your coffee table. And I had the baby on top of the kotatsu blanket, which is an enormous, heavy blanket. And uh, we heard the booty booty sound, which is the Japanese, you know, pooping sound for a baby. Uh, And it, you know, (laughs) Leaked out both sides of his diaper, which how do you do oh. that? He had one diaper that was clean in the middle, <laughs> dirty on both sides, <laughs> leaking out both legs. And it doesn't seem physically possible. How did he do it? It's, I mean, it's a massive mystery. So wow. uh, then it's like, okay, his onesies destroyed around the little leg holes. And then the outerwear that he had that was like a longer garment, those legs are destroyed. It's leaking through and it's on the kotatsu blanket now. Ugh. So... What that initiates is my wife or I, we kind of split the duties. One of us will you know, have to rush him to the changing table, strip off all his clothes, clean him up, get the new diaper, mm-hmm. the new outfit, put all that together. The other parent is like taking those clothes into the sink with the special washing soap or the bleach and uh, just go into town trying to get it, you know, turn on the steamy water, put your kitchen gloves on, you're scrubbing and scrubbing and letting it soak right. in bleach. 
And to make matters worse, it was the Kotatsu blanket, which is massive. And so I had to get a corner of that into the sink as well. And then that takes forever to dry. And right. uh, it's like you go from a relatively peaceful evening to like 30 minutes of high intensity <laughs> chores. And uh, that is something that we've talked about before. You should never procrastinate when you have a kid, like if you need to, uh, I've got time to do the dishes. You won't have time to do the dishes because something's going to happen. You do them when they're there. (laughs) Yeah. It's really good takeaway is um, you've got to cut down procrastination as much as you can because there are always things that are going to come up. So that was one of the peaks. The other peak was um, we had a poop explosion, pretty standard, you know, just through all garments, through all layers and the boy's dirty. You got to clean him up. Got to change his clothes. And while this is happening, we heard in the <laughs> ceiling, we heard a scamper, 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 scamper <laughs> from oh, one no. end of the house <laughs> to the other end of the house. I'm talking about like through the Gencon, like in the front where you take off your shoes, across the dining room ceiling, across the living room ceiling, oh, all the no. way to the other end of the house. Whatever it was must have hit the wall and turned around and then scamper, 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 <laughs> all the way back. And then, so now we have the high alarm of like, we're dealing with bleaching and, you know, dirty baby, crying baby, change the clothes. And there's something living in the ceiling. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. We learned all of this. <laughs> we had all of these experiences within about a two minute window, uh, very intense two minute window. And, um, I know it was uh, very exhausting to my wife. It was just like physically draining to have so much trauma. So like back to back. And now you have to sleep in this house and we're like, is it a rat? Like, did a cat get up there? (laughs) What happened? It was a pretty loud scamper. So my wife was uh, so exhausted and had burned so much energy. She was like, I'm hungry. (laughs) You know, just from this one explosive moment. So I gave her a spoon of cookie dough. (laughs) <laughs> and just laying in the bed. That's our, our go-to dessert in this house is one spoonful of cookie dough. So that's what it takes to recover. But nice. this has been the nature of um, this period of his life, say around week eight, week nine in the transition, there are a lot of poop explosions, a lot mm-hmm. more emergency laundry to be done. And then for some reason, your house gets overrun by rats. I don't know how it ties in, but that's what happened to us. Man, you can't get out of that place fast enough. <laughs> I know. This house, by the end of the year, this house is going to be a pile of rubble, and rightly so at this point. Our update actually ties pretty well into your update. Like, nothing massive happened uh, for us. It's it's only been a week now that he's been home, and we've been kind of co-parenting with him. But in that span, we had a good chunk of five days where neither of us had any diapering mishaps. Mm-hmm. And then in the span of two days, he got us both pretty good. <laughs> like, I think it started with me. Like, I was changing him. And, like, I'm always a little cautious about the pee while I'm changing him. Because yeah. I'm like, I saw you peed, but I know you got another one ready. And this one time, I was just a little slow. And he was just pointed straight up. And this <laughs> this pee got everywhere, man. Yeah. It was like yeah. all, it got both diapers. It got all of the clothes he was wearing and the pad under him. And I was like, yeah. son of a bitch. And then, so I get them all changed and all done. And then I think it was later in the day, he did it again to me. <laughs> so I ran through like three pairs of clothes that day. That's when you least terrible. expect it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then uh, the next day, 
was was the worst, I think. And this happened to Moe. So we were we were just about to give him a bath. We'd got him all naked. We changed his diaper. It was it was a full one. So we were mm-hmm. like, all right, you know, we're good. We're good for at least ten minutes. She's got him. She picks up this naked baby, carrying him from the pad to the bathtub. And right as she's like mid carry, he just lets loose in her hand. Oh no! <laughs> a full poo right in the hand. Uh, I mean, it was like almost perfect though because she caught it all, and like it didn't get anywhere. Because if she hadn't, then oh man, that mess would have been terrible. I'm sure it would have gotten <laughs> everywhere. There has to be some wisdom, like a poo in the hand is worth two in the diaper. Or I don't know how the math works out, but there's something there. There's something we can... Two on the floor is worth two, two on, on the floor. floor. A poo in the hand is worth two on the floor. I'd say that's true. I'd rather clean that's one off the hand than two off the floor. That's definitely uh, true. That's good wisdom right there. You just coined yeah. some wisdom, my friend. So that was it. That was us. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I don't know if there are any tips, but we did go back to newborn onesies a little bit. Uh, that was part of our strategy early on was give them two layers of clothes. One of them should be the American style onesie that snaps at the bottom because it right. holds the diaper more securely. Uh, and yeah. we've gone, we still go with the onesies, but we went with the bigger ones. And so we reverted back to the newborn onesies, which are just at the edge of being wearable now. You know, I was just at the store looking because Coda's a little small and he doesn't quite fit in the smallest infant size stuff. So everything's a little big, Mm -hmm. but I was look, I was comparing. So they have like the 50 to 60 range infant clothes. Mm -hmm. I was holding up three different companies, 50 to 60 range, and they were literally all different sizes. Mm -hmm. And so I think like it's possible that maybe if you're just going and looking for something on the high end for you guys, you might just like physically compare them and be like, all right, well, this one's like still zero to three months, but it's the biggest one. So we're going to go with that one. That's good. If you can learn your brand and then sort of know the differences, Uh, you know, if you're in a shop, you can hold them up side by side. We do a lot of Mercari shopping and we'll get, Uh, you know, like a, like $3 onesie or whatever $4 gown or something. And we just sort of load up on Mercari and then Mm. uh, it's hard, but maybe you could just bulk shop on Mercari knowing that a it's inexpensive and B you can resell it back on Mercari. Always get your $3 back. Yeah. That may be a good way to go. Just as you're saying, it's not a strict sizing, I think. Then also if you have stuff coming from America, it's, you know, like mm. three months or three to six months or whatever. And then in Japan, they go, you know, more 50 to 60, 60 to 70. So there yeah. must be variation between those two. So yeah, bulk shopping or comparison shopping, that must be the way. Yeah, I do have to agree, though, that kind of the American style inner with the three buttons on the bottom really mm-hmm. help keep everything intact a lot better yeah. than having that like Jinbei style with just the string that ties over. Yeah, because that bunches up when he's moving around, and then nothing stays really in place. We haven't had any explosions, thankfully, but it's a matter of time. Yeah, yeah, he's a time bomb for sure. It's that thing where you feel like you've got a handle on it because you've done it for a few weeks or a few months, and then something slightly changes, like you know his mm. clothing size or whatever, and you're like, "Oh, this is a problem I didn't foresee because I thought we were doing it pretty well." Mm. That's um, something I've learned is that you've never really covered the base 
you've got your yeah. strategy for those few weeks and then something's going to happen and throw a monkey wrench into it. Still, as I've said many times, if those are our problems, then we've got it pretty easy. Mm, uh, just poop explosion. Oh, I did want to circle <laughs> back, uh, poop in the hand. Um, <laughs> I haven't experienced it, but I've been leery of it because I give him the bath most often. So I've mm. got, you know, very often a hand under his naked bottom, taking him in and out of the bathtub. But within, I think, the first 10 or 11 days of his life, he committed the poop in the hand, but it was to his grandfather. Oh, nice. (laughs) We were all trying to get a bath time in, you know, when we lived with the in-laws there. Mm. My wife was the pro because she had been in the hospital. So she did the first one and showed me. And I think I did the second one. And the grandparents were often standing to the side and watching. So then they got their turn at the bath. And I think Mm. it was just at the end of the bath. He um, was being lifted out and did a full poo right in his grandfather's hand. Perfect. And talk about a lack of respect. <laughs> As you said before, poo in the hand is worth two on the floor. <laughs> so uh, you're still happy about it. Could have been worse. Could have been worse. But that's all for our poop heavy updates. Um, yes. Our heavy poop updates. Poop heavy updates. Uh, and I think we can get into segment time. Let's do it. I don't have a lot to talk about with this today, but I I wanted to get into a little bit of infant vision development. Mm -hmm. I've been looking at a lot of different books and different ways to help Coda develop as early as possible. A lot of that has led me to these strange looking black and white, sometimes black and white and red books or cards that you can get for infants. Mm -hmm. And I was really confused by these because they look hideous. And some of them look downright scary. Like if they're actually of like people or animals, they have these like massive, like scary doll eyes that look like they're just going to murder you. But Mm -hmm. apparently it's good for infants. So in my search to figure these out, I stumbled upon some research Uh, about why these cards are good for infants. Mm -hmm. One of them said, until around three months of age, infants cannot focus on objects that are more than eight to 10 inches away from their faces. Around three months, their vision range begins to increase, but they haven't yet developed the ability to move their vision focus from one object to another yet. So in in that first three months, they're looking around a lot. And I've noticed this with Coda, like his eyes are kind of going all over the place, like seeing different stuff. But apparently he's only taken in the high contrast of like our house or like the window brightness that's outside versus the darkness that's inside. Mm-hmm. So I guess with these cards, the idea is that it gives them a high contrast image so that they can focus and train their eyes a little bit better and then kind of have something to look rather than just these things that are too far away. Because, you know, mm-hmm. if he's staring at the ceiling, that's a couple meters away. It's it, He's not going to be able to focus. So you hold these cards kind of close to his face within that eight inch range. And then he's able to kind of, you know, focus a little bit and then look away. You put another card up. He sees that one, focuses a little bit, and then looks away. And it's, it's a slow game, but mm-hmm. I think it's good to help kind of stimulate that growth. Yeah, it sounds good. And I've noticed it with our boy that like 50% of the time he's looking at shoji windows. 
um, mm. which we have all over our living room on you know both sides of it and they're bright as well there's no curtains involved or anything so yeah. shoji you know it's the classic japanese window uh, sort of wooden thin wooden slats horizontal and vertical making a lot of squares and then white paper behind them and i think those uh, wooden slats are like dark lines across a very bright white and he's just obsessed with it i've read in the book that um you know the what to expect book that the kids love uh, the contrast and they love geometric shapes. And I guess yeah. it's all very simple to wrap your mind around in terms of things to see for the first time. You know, a simple yeah. geometric shape would do it. High contrast would be good. And uh, I also heard that that sort of eight to 10 inch range that you're talking about, say like, you know, maybe at the extremes, like 20 centimeters to 30 centimeters or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I heard that uh, the reasoning for that being their, field of vision is that maybe the most important thing they can see at that age is who is feeding me. This will mm, be the person right. I trust. And uh, from breastfeeding or usually bottle feeding, you know, in modern times, uh, yeah. they that's about the distance to the face of the mother or the father with the bottle. So yeah. um, maybe evolutionarily, there's good reason for them to see that far uh, and maybe start to pick up some of the facial features, but in general, yeah, it is that high contrast. And it makes sense that the black and white with, uh, sometimes red, and then, you know, on a card that you could put right in front of their face, that should mm. probably enthrall them as compared to almost anything else. You know, I got a book that has these in it. It's like a 10 page book. And, uh, I was reading how to do it. And they were saying that you're not obviously playing a game. You're not giving the kid the book and saying like, okay, look at this, have fun mm-hmm. <laughs> more just like putting them in front of his face. And then when you see him recognize something and pause there for a second, you know, he's thinking, or, you know, mm-hmm. something's happening and that's kind of all you can expect and all you can hope for in that. So I think that's kind of the type of game you're doing at this stage. It puts me in mind of something I read, I don't know, a few months or maybe a year ago, and it was um, an interview with a person who had been deaf their entire lives, and then they had some sort of new surgery that gave them hearing for the first time as an adult. Crazy. So uh, this person was experiencing any type of sound at all for the first time as an adult. And one of the questions was, have you listened to any music and what sort of music do you like as someone (laughs) who's freshly hearing anything? And uh, the answer was really, it was surprising, but it was also very intuitive. The answer from this person was, first of all, it has to be very, very simple music. Because if it's some like big, Mm. loud or like a prog rock or like with a hundred instruments or whatever, it's so overwhelming that I can't parse out what's going on at all. And it sounds like chaos and madness and it's just a big confusion. But if it's, um, I think the person said that they... Uh, enjoyed like a really stripped down punk music because the (laughs) beat was so direct and the instrumentation was so simplistic that you could just identify the few parts and be like, yeah, Mm. got it, got it, got it. This makes sense to me. And um, if you don't have experience with it, yeah, you would want to start, you know, slow or start with the fewest elements that you could. And that's the thing that is just mind blowing about babies is that it's a blank slate not only mm. with what they know, but with what they experience. It's like, right. you know, to take things in, you're taking it in for the first time, which is almost impossible to imagine. But logically, mm. yeah, if you could strip down the inputs to the simplest form, you would probably get the most mileage out of it. Yeah, it's crazy to think like for the first maybe even like four months, five months of his life, like everything's just basically a blur and yeah. almost colorless. I think they mm. can see color. It just maybe doesn't register because 
I'm going to totally mess this up, but maybe the cones aren't developed enough to actually mm-hmm. register what they're seeing. It's probably like anything else that takes exercise and repetition to get any dexterity right. or any skill with anything. That's true. It's hard to imagine what it's like. You know, people who have been through some traumatic injury often say, I had to learn how to walk again. And it's mm-hmm. hard to understand, like, learning how to walk again, you know? It's like, shouldn't right. that just, you know, shouldn't you just pick up once you're healthy? You just walk. <laughs> yeah, just walk, man. <laughs> Hey, I got an idea. Just walk. (laughs) Best advice ever. (laughs) It must be so difficult. Um, And then a baby, you know, not that a baby cares, but they're dealing with everything all at once. Clean slate, trying to figure it all out. Yeah, I kind of think of it like that scene in, uh, I don't know, one of the Superman movies where he's a kid and suddenly senses all his powers at the first time and everything just like hits him at once. That's kind of what I imagine a baby's going through the first like couple months of his life. Like, mm-hmm. how do I parse this information? And it must be really, really gratifying to a baby to be like, oh, I can use my hand to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> to make that connection. I'm sure they learn it and forget it a few times over, but that must be a great feeling. Yeah, Coda's really good about grabbing that pacifier out of his mouth. He obviously doesn't know he's doing it yet, but he's real good at it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We had, in the first month, we were given Nico a bath in the sink, and there was a cup with toothbrushes in it on the Mm. sink. And he reached up with his hand, grabbed the cup by the handle, and pulled the cup into the bath with him. And we're like, (laughs) oh my goodness, he's a hellraiser. (laughs) This this is a bath time chaos. Anarchy. (laughs) (laughs) But he's never done it since. He's never grabbed anything since. But that one time... Well, lesson learned. (laughs) He's like, cups hurt. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not doing that again. Just covered in toothbrushes. They were twice my size. Well, uh, yeah, the vision thing is, um, it's Mm. interesting. And it's good to stimulate them in ways that they can make use of and appreciate, I think. Mm. Um, We're only now, I think at about nine weeks, we're only getting long sustained eye contact that seems meaningful, uh, that you know, you'll sort of move from side to side and he'll follow you with his eyes in his head and make a concerted effort to oh, nice. look at you as a person, you know, as opposed to he's had, you know, 15 minute stretches where he stares at the window, but he's never <laughs> like registered with the person's face and followed it around until maybe this right. week or maybe last week. So uh, it's an interesting milestone. <clears throat> yeah, we're still way too early for any of that stuff. Two weeks and he looks at me sometimes and i'll feel like oh yeah he gets it and then he'll just space off somewhere with nico it was a lot of um you know he would stare at the shoji window for the Mm. high contrast and then you would think like oh he's staring in that direction i'll just put my face in his field of vision and as soon as you do that he's like boring and he looks over (laughs) to catch more shoji in a different direction so he would purposely avoid looking at you for a long time but now he's into it If you're ready, we can go on to segment two. Yeah, you got some bilingualism for us today? Yes, sir. Segment two is about bilingualism, and uh, in particular, it's bilingualism as discussed in the book that we so often reference, What to Expect the First Year, the completely revised and updated third edition by Heidi Murkoff, a book that I really like a lot and that I'm uh, surprised that I like this much. Because it mm. seemed kind of like, well, everybody's got it. It's kind of boilerplate. It's like watching 
dancing with the stars or something. It's like, oh yeah, that's the popular <laughs> thing. But then you realize, oh, this is popular because it's like 600 pages of info. Right. And it's hard to even look something up in it because as you flip through the pages, you'll notice something and be mm. like, oh yeah, what's that about? And read a couple of pages and then flip through yeah. more. So you pick it up to look for one thing and you'll read five different sections. But uh, I do like the book a lot. However, I have stumbled upon <laughs> the first section that I take great issue with. And okay. uh, this is on page 247 of my edition. And its heading is a second language, which is something that, you know, we're focused on. Right. And um, I'll read some sections of it and then we can discuss uh, and I'll you know say why I disagree with them so strongly. Here's a negative for me. It says most experts agree that speaking two languages to your baby from the start allows your little one to acquire a second language along with the first, as opposed to merely learning it, as would be the case if it were introduced later. That's a powerful distinction, since it's the difference between being a native speaker in two languages and merely being fluent in a second language. Mm. To me, this is kind of a negative, and I am going to be a bit of a douche here and <laughs> explain. I did go to school specifically for teaching English to speakers of other languages. And uh, we studied that a lot in various classes. And then over the last 15 years, I've had every type of kid in you know class, whether it's a kid who grew up in America and came back to Japan or was born in America as sort of a native speaker and came back or just spent a year mm -hmm. abroad. And I've sort of seen the spectrum of uh, kids speaking foreign languages at various levels of fluency or what you would call native. And in the old days, the thought was native is best and fluency is fine, but it can't really hold a candle to native. But as time has gone by, um, there's been a lot of thought about what's called a nest versus a non-nest. A nest is a teacher, a native English speaking teacher, and a non-nest is a non-native English speaking teacher. And there's all this debate in the literature about is it better to be a nest or a non-nest? And then there's also a debate about uh, inner circle English versus outer circle English. Uh, inner circle English would be countries like England, Australia, the United States, Canada, where English is spoken by most of the population and it's sort of the, the language that the government conducts everything in and that the people conduct their lives in generally on the whole. And then right. an outer circle English speaking country is a country like India, where there are millions and millions of fluent mm -hmm. English speakers, but um, English didn't you know, originate in India. It wasn't a lot of people's first language, but still you have a high degree of fluency among literally millions of people there. So then right. a lot of times outer circle English speakers get sort of derided or say they might not be hired as easily for a teaching position in Japan, for example, as an inner circle English speaker. But if you look into the literature on all this stuff, there's like a huge amount of defense in modern times for non-native English speakers, for outer circle English speakers, for non-nests, like across the board, the real important distinction between native speaker and fluent speaker, as you really get into it, it seemed to be less and less important all the time. Hmm. It's not worth saying, hey, you really want to be native and fluent is just not going to cut it in the same way. And granted, there are some advantages to being native, but you can do 99% of what you need to be doing even if right. you're just fluent, you know, so it's not that big of a deal and it's not focused on that much anymore uh, where it mm. was probably 15 or 20 years ago in, say, the hiring manager of a school or in some academics mind. It's just not the same. So I would guess that what she wrote here is somewhat outdated 
or based on something that was researched for this book, but maybe from a couple of decades ago. But I still think, you know, of course you want to raise your kid to be bilingual. So it's it's good to do. I was just taking issue kind of with her distinction between those two things as though they're significantly different when in modern times it's seen as much less significant. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of surprising. Next, uh, in the next paragraph, it says, some suggest that learning two languages at once can slow a child in both. But if it does, that would be only a very temporary blip in his verbal development. And I think that's true. We talked about that before, that right. when you're learning two languages, you might be a bit slower in each, but in the long run, you're going to be like leaps and bounds ahead of everyone because you'll be bilingual. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Yeah, and I totally agree. But then there's a, a part in parentheses that says, balanced out by the significant benefits of being bilingual and having a natural affinity for learning languages likely to last a lifetime. But I don't think being bilingual directly leads to an affinity for learning languages for your lifetime. Foreign language might not be your thing. You're bilingual, but you just don't necessarily then love foreign language. You know, I always wonder about this because, you know, there's countries like uh, like Luxembourg and their primary like export is like language learners, Mm -hmm. like people in in Luxembourg. I've heard like know like four languages Mm -hmm. and that's what they do Mm -hmm. just because they're like centrally located and it's easy for them to kind of, you know, they have to know different languages from the area. Mm -hmm. And I assume it's easier for them after they've done a couple when they're young and then they can just go and kind of pick up the rest in primary school. But I, I don't know. I bet that it makes it easier to pick up a third if you were raised with two, as opposed to picking up a second if you were only raised as a monolingual kid. Um, I would say that it is easier. The thing that annoys me is just the the word choice of the affinity for learning languages. And right. it's like, don't promise that to people in your book. You're not going to have a kid who loves language. <laughs> I think it's still a crapshoot. It's 50-50. Maybe he'll like it. Maybe oh, he yeah, won't. Yeah. yeah, that's true. The two languages that the bilingual kid speaks are just reflexive. It doesn't mean he's going to excel hmm. in a certain field You know that you might think he would. But um, yeah, I agree with you. It's going to help uh, probably with third language acquisition, just being fluent in two grammars, for example, and understanding how hmm. they work. All right. So then uh, the book goes on into ways to pick up the second language. Um, And it says, probably the most effective, you speak English exclusively to your baby while mom speaks Spanish exclusively to him. This is obviously for the American Mm -hmm. context with uh, like a Spanish-speaking mother, English-speaking father. But this is something we talk specifically about that if the father, say, in that context only spoke English, mother only speaks Spanish, but then the kid goes to daycare and that's English and the grandparents are speaking English and all the TV right. the kid watches is English and so on and so on. All the friends speak English. Then it's not a 50-50 split. It's really like a 95-5 split uh, when right. you factor in all of that other stuff. And then you're not really helping the language pay dividends like it should because you're, you know, it's minimized in a way. Yeah, That's what the book calls the most effective, but I think from everyone we've talked to in the past about it, that seems to be maybe the least effective of the ways you could do it. Yeah, I don't think they take into consideration having a household language rather than an individual language, Mm -hmm. where it seems like we've discussed like a household language is the best way and then a societal language, which is the other one. I think we talked about this before, but it's not so much a split between mother and father, it's a split between inside outside. And that's where you can really get closer to a 50-50. The book claims that that's the the most effective way, I would say, it belongs further down on the list 
the next approach. It says a somewhat less effective approach. A grandparent, sitter, or au pair can speak Spanish while you both speak English. And I would say that that's good (laughs) bits of exposure. But how often actually is a grandparent going to be with the kid? Is a sitter going to be with the kid? Or the au pair, maybe if it's a live-in au pair situation. But uh, I would say that the frequency of these things, it's just like a glancing blow for the language exposure. It's not full-on immersion. And the kid might pick up some vocab, but it's probably going to be hard to really get a firm sense of grammar and to expand the language as time goes by. I don't see that as being very effective. Yeah, not unless they're... They're spending like every day with them as their daycare person. Yeah. And then you're getting like five plus hours of exposure. But I doubt that. Yeah. It seems yet to be a sort of rare case. So then they wrap up this list. Probably the least practical of the approaches, which probably would slow down English skills considerably. You both speak Spanish, assuming you are fluent. Anyone who (laughs) speaks to your baby in Spanish should be fluent in it. And your baby picks up English at daycare, preschool, or from a sitter. And this, to my mind, is the best way. And it's identified here as the least practical on the list. Well, I was going to say, like, I think from their perspective, they're coming from the American perspective where kids don't typically go into daycare until they're like three and above. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I might agree with the book. Mm -hmm. Because I've read studies where it says, you know, between uh, zero and three years old is the best time for kids to pick up two languages because their brains are more kind of flexible and they can understand things better. So after three, it becomes more difficult. And so maybe that's what they're talking about. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would say that the downfall of what the book's putting out there is that everyone's situation is highly variable in terms of, like, as you said, maybe you start daycare at three, but maybe you're in a family where you had to start daycare at six months or at two months or something. Right. Or maybe you've got live-in grandparents who speak a certain language, or maybe you have grandparents who live 45 minutes across town. It's a wildly different scenario Mm. depending on the location of the grandparents. Or maybe you do have a sitter who's there every single day. Maybe you have a sitter who's there once a week. And all of these variables would really change the amount of exposure. So then it's hard to make blanket rules like here's the most practical way. Here's the least practical way when you haven't Mm. pinned down any anybody's variables to that degree. And I wish that they would have acknowledged it, because if somebody doesn't look into it or think about it too much, they might think like, oh, well, the book said don't worry about it. You know, and then their situation is so drastically different that they're actually operating sort of against their own purposes. Of course, this is a book that has like. 500 plus pages with 500 plus topics. So yeah. <laughs> they can't yeah. really expand too much on it. It is nice that they give it a little blurb, but yeah, they should they should give some qualifiers to that. If I were to rewrite this section, I would at least acknowledge it for um, a couple of paragraphs and say right. that, you know, depending on your situation, you could get away with only speaking the second language in the house if you, mm-hmm. you know, have inputs. Uh, for the first language outside of the house and so on. And, you know, try to analyze and try to find the right balance for you uh, rather than giving a more prescriptive list like they've done. But there are a couple of other points that um, I didn't necessarily agree with. Um, It recommends, uh, you know, for the second language, of course, do nursery rhymes in the second language, sing, read books, play games, watch movies. That's all valuable. Uh, It says, 
Here, though, if possible, visiting places where the language is native, especially if it is your wife's homeland, since you'll be imparting a sense of heritage along with those language skills. So that's in the list of, you know, watch movies, visit friends, read books. Also, you know, go to the one parent's homeland. That's the second language, you know, where the kid would Mm -hmm. have some immersion. But I also would advise people like don't overestimate how valuable that's going to be. Because what's a vacation really, but probably a week, maybe two weeks, right. maybe you could pull off a month. And if that is the period of time, say in the first year, two, three years of the kid's life, that's such a blip that the kid might gain some tiny element of fluency mm. with that. But it's not actually going to be this big rewarding experience when a kid's really acquiring language on a day-to-day basis with how they're communicating all the time and something that isn't useful to a kid uh, say like, you know, speaking Spanish while in Mexico for maybe this U S case that might be useful to the kid for that week. But then Mm -hmm. the kid comes back and two years go by when it's not useful that way anymore. The kid has no motivation to do it in that same useful way. And then it falls right off. So it's a good thing to do, but I wouldn't list it alongside of, you know, the day to day things that are really going to pay the dividends. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, and then finally, this was very bizarre, but it says um, the, the closing of this section, it says eventually your son will be able to keep his two languages equal, but separate. <laughs> and uh, it's like, did you just invoke <laughs> the separate but equal segregation clause? <laughs> like, I mean, that whole period of U.S. history when separate but equal was like right. this massive policy, but an enormous stain on wow. the history of race relations. <laughs> like, why would you cap it off with a cutesy little reference to separate but equal? Wow. It's so weird. <laughs> uh, so this section just needs a rewrite. I mean... Murkoff, if you're listening, call me up. I'll rewrite it for free and it'll be better (laughs) and it'll be more accurate. And I'll get rid of your like odd race baiting at the very end. I don't know how that slipped in. Weird. Yeah. I would say I disagreed with more than half of that section. And Mm. um, hopefully it's not just my wild bias or anything, but we've talked to a lot of people about this who have been through it. And yeah. I spent a lot of years in school studying this stuff. And then I spent a lot of years teaching kids who had been Mm. at some level of this. And it's just not been my experience. Like what she said is actually the way it plays out. So I would say take that section with a grain of salt and maybe look Mm. elsewhere or look at something a bit more focused on bilingualism rather than just this section of the book. Because I think not only would you learn more, but you would learn something that's maybe opposite or just opposed to what's being said here. That's my bilingualism rant and wrap up. Otherwise, I should say, I mean, with this book, it's like a 99 to one, like 99 things. I'm like, that's really interesting. Oh, that's good advice. That's nice. And then one, I'm like, come on. Yeah. So I still, I like the book. I recommend the book. Go for it. All right. Is it question time? It is question time. Let's head over there. (laughs) (laughs) Just turned into blues clues or something. (laughs) Uh, so today's my question for you is is a little bit different than our norm. Usually we ask for an opinion or your experience on something mm. or uh, how you perceive something to be going down. Today, it's actually just, uh, it's a little more like trivia. And it was just something interesting I came across, again, in the book, What to Expect. Uh, this is on page 237. And the heading is, Today's Slower Babies. 
What? Yeah, and I'm going to read the first sentence, which is going to set up the question. Okay. It says, something you should definitely keep in mind when that compulsion to compare gets the best of you, and it will. Babies today are developing later in some major gross motor skill categories than they used to. Hmm. That's the opening line of this section. As a fact. Yeah, just a pure fact. Just a okay. cold, hard fact. And when I read that, I was like, really? And then it is explained in the next couple of sentences. And then when I read the explanation, I was like, oh, it makes perfect sense. Huh. And it's something that we've talked about before. It's something that we know and that we should be able to deduce. So um, take a crack at it. Why do you think babies today are developing later in some major gross motor skill categories? And this, I think gross motor skill categories, it's not like fine, like finger movements or hand movements. It's like controlling their bodies or say like, you put a baby in the bouncer and he learns, oh, if I kick, I can bounce or the baby can roll over or that sort of like really basic full body motion sort of stuff. Right. They're developing more slowly these days than they did in the past. Why do you think that might be? Well, just based on what I've looked into and what we've talked about before, I would assume that it's because you're taking away the need for it from the kids from an early stage. Like we're introducing these things like bouncers or things that a rocker that will take away their need to kind of like do it themselves or occupy their own time. And so maybe that would slow them down a little bit. So there's some like baby technology or parenting device that's supplanting like their need to explore something physically. I would say that's halfway to the answer that they give. Okay. It's definitely something that the parents are doing that's making babies develop more slowly, but it's not a bad thing. So not shaking. Yeah, it's not shaking. It's not that we're all shaking much more. Uh, it's definitely a It's a huge positive. It's a huge net positive, something that we're doing now that they didn't used to do. But a side effect of it is that babies develop these skills more slowly. Is it that we're overstimulating and giving a lot of things right out the gate in an attempt to try to make them develop faster, but it's actually making them develop slower? That's a good idea. It's actually like one very specific thing. Like one specific. I've tapped my idea of reserves. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll continue the reading. This is so interesting to me. Okay. It says, not because they're less naturally precocious, but because they're spending less time on their tummies. Oh. Putting babies to sleep on their backs dramatically reduces the risk of SIDS, but it also temporarily slows motor development in some babies. With little opportunity to practice those skills babies used to practice on their tummies, such as crawling, more babies are accomplishing these skills later. Many are even skipping the crawling stage entirely, which is no problem since it's not considered a developmental must-do. Interesting. So, yeah, when you put a kid on their uh, tummy, like in the crib to sleep, they'll theoretically just have way more hours of lifting up their head. Right. To look around. Yeah. Scooting around. And that slowed them all down. But the benefit from, you know, the reduced SIDS is obviously way more worth it. It scares the crap out of me to think about putting Coda down on his belly and then just watching. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think we programmed ourselves to be fearful of it by reading everybody's advice against it. So rightfully so we should be fearful of it. But I remember when you brought up tummy time a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. and I tried it for the first time, I was like, I shouldn't be doing this. No, no, no. 
but now I'm a bit more used to it. And Nico's developed some head raising skills that he didn't used to have. So it's paid off. This past week, I've been doing primarily tummy time on my chest. So I'll like almost lay like at a 45 degree angle and put him on me and then just kind of let him figure it out. It's pretty amazing how much he raises his head and kind of pushes his body up with his arms. It's so valuable and you can see it develop as the weeks go by, mm. you know, that they're gaining, I mean, they're just purely gaining muscle and also gaining a bit of control. And <laughs> yeah, I say that every time I'm like, get those gains. <laughs> yeah. Sick gains, bro. <laughs> yeah. I feel that way for sure about Nico, but it's remarkable that it, it does come at the expense of, um, of the gross motor skills that we only put them on their tummy sparingly. Mm. And, Sometimes in the back of my mind, I think, shouldn't evolution have sorted this out somehow? Right. But I guess in this case, it's not really survival for the baby that they can pick their head up at uh, two months instead of three months mm. or that they can lift themselves up at three instead of four. Because what's the difference, really? Right. Uh, it, you know, the parent's going to be meeting 100% of the kid's needs and they're not ever going to be able to save themselves from any bad yeah. situation by doing that. Uh, but it is odd that... Um, yeah, they'll get skills, but you need to hold them back. You need to give them their, you know, back to sleep time and then do the tummy time just here and there through the day. Are you putting him like just on the mat now by himself? Very rarely. I'll usually do it on my own chest. Um, and sometimes I'll sit on the sofa with my back against the armrest. So mm. I'll be at a 45 degree angle and that's a bit easier for him. But yeah. other times I'll just lay down in the bed and uh, just have him on top. And half the time now he's realized I can just sleep through this. And so, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's nice and warm. I never get to sleep on my tummy. This is great. And he just lays his face down and goes to sleep. Yeah, I find that's what Coda does most of the time. It's now his new favorite napping spot. (laughs) Oh, these kids. (laughs) Always working against our interests. But yeah, that's uh, that just caught me off guard. It was very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Let's keep the interest rolling, hopefully, and get into Japanese of the day. Okay, what do you got? Japanese of the day today, it's something that we should probably all know just because it's katakana, and uh, we should be able to decipher it. Goddamn katakana. I mean... I love katakana words sometimes because they're so just like 10 degrees off center. And you're like, oh, that's what that's crazy. How did that ever catch on? So the one for stroller, that's the one I want to do today. And, you know, the katakana word for stroller. I do. Baby car. Baby car, which is, of course, baby car. And uh, that's stroller, everybody. That's pram, stroller, whatever you want to call it. Um, Baby car is what you'll hear. And uh, it's a car for a baby, of course. Yeah, obviously. What I like about that is it puts me in mind of a lot of other katakana words that are similar. Like, do you know the katakana, so the Japanese word, katakana word for a convertible car? I don't. It is open car. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) If you want a convertible, you go to the dealership and ask for an open car. Hmm. And they will give you an open car. My favorite two katakana words kind of going off the beaten path here, but... Do you know the katakana Japanese word for a Phillips head screwdriver and a flathead screwdriver? I don't, actually. Those are a plus driver and minus driver. Oh, that seems pretty obvious. (laughs) Isn't that genius? (laughs) The plus driver, the minus driver. Right. It's way, way better than Phillips head. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, Phillips doesn't mean anything. 
and flathead okay i get it but i remember as a kid for years i would hear phillips head and i would be like wait is that the no, yeah it's called flathead so by process of elimination you know it was just hard to wrap my mind around as a yeah kid. that's but true. if they gave me plus and minus i would have had it from day one yeah that is easier so japanese of the day simple one but baby cop and by extension open cop little plus driver little minus driver hmm. so that'll do it for japanese of the day and that'll do it for today's episode so thank you for listening we hope this week's episode was informative and interesting if you have any questions or comments please reach out to us either on twitter at jpops podcast or by email at info at the jpops.com talk to you next time and remember a poo in the hand is worth two on the floor nice